Hey everyone, welcome to Neuropod. This channel is dedicated to helping people easily learn about the Elon Musk company Neuralink and its future. I believe the best way to do this is for me to synthesize information, share my opinions, and conduct interviews with folks who are knowledgeable about related fields. In this episode, I interviewed Akshay Ravindran. He's a PhD grad student at the University of Houston working on brain-machine interface systems. Akshay aspires to become a professor who both teaches and conducts research. We discuss many things related to Neuralink, including Neuralink's invasive approach to brain-machine interface development, and also what things Neuralink might be too optimistic about. I'll include a link in the description to Akshay's LinkedIn account if you're interested in messaging him directly. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to Neuropod. In this episode, I have on a guest, Akshay Ravindran. Is that correct? Oh, that's correct, yeah. Pretty awesome. better than most, yeah. <laughs> you're right now you're a grad student at uh, University of Houston. Do you mind telling the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah, hi Ryan. So as you said, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Houston. Um, I work in the non-invasive brain machine interface systems lab. It is directed by Dr. Contreras Vidal. Uh, so mostly what we do is we, uh, we develop systems which control uh, different rehabilitation robotics or different, different robotic systems, right? With the, with the brain system, brain. Um, but unlike Neuralink, which I think Ryan mainly covers, it is completely non-invasive. So we use a system called electroencephalography which is, uh, it can be thought of like a swimming cap with some holes on where we put some electrodes essentially, right? Um, these are metal electrodes, which are kept on the scalp. It picks up electrical field from the, from the scalp regions. And we use the signal from that to control different systems. Uh, it could be robotics, it could be exoskeletons, things like that, right? My work is mainly on developing different interpretable models. Uh, just to give an example, imagine there is a stroke participant, a person with a stroke, right? A typical system that we develop is uh, we decode from the brain corresponding to the motor regions or where a uh, hand or leg representation is. Uh, we pick up signals from that region and we find characteristic signals which are representative to movement. Then we decode this to have the person move their limbs. Now, this is good from a rehabilitation purpose. We need to reinforce this, this connection. Uh, for people with stroke, often this connection is broken. Uh, some of the parts of the brain gets damaged, so this connection might be impaired. Uh, the purpose behind rehabilitation is when the person thinks about it, that connection should sort of be sort of, it's like training essentially. So it's very important that whatever we are decoding is the correct signal. Say, for example, if I use an AI or deep learning model and it gives me 99% accuracy, right? Every time it gives me correct prediction. But it is not picking up from the brain signals. It's picking up from some other artifacts, for example. Maybe I, I'm just clenching my teeth or I'm just moving my ears. It adds noise to your signal, right? It's not what you're actually needing. So what the classifier is going to give you perfect accuracy. My intent is developing systems, which ensures that whatever the model is learning is from the brain signals. And the physicians or whoever is working on that can have a better understanding on that. I also work with uh, balance prediction for exoskeleton users. One of the major problems is with uh, elderly or people with uh, locomotion difficulties, they tend to fall and that costs to much more health complications, right? So the idea is if we can detect fall early on from your brain signals or muscle signals, uh, we should be able to trigger an exoskeleton system. So finding these patterns. So my research mainly involves that. 
on the side i do work with a bit of meditation and some uh, studying the brain in outside lab environments we measure the brain in museums of musicians dancers etc this uh, so i do participate in those uh, research as well i guess the overall approach that you guys are are looking to explore and basically you're looking to improve is the idea of getting better signal to noise ratio for a non-invasive brain machine interface exactly yes and it it sounds like based on my research other companies like facebook and um some are, some smaller startups are also looking at that approach whereas neuralink seems to be like very certain that the invasive approach is the better approach so i'm curious if you could just talk about some of the pros and cons and uh what you think are some of the hurdles that Neuralink might have to overcome if they're doing the invasive approach? I'll just start with the EEG system, right? Like the thing that we're doing. The advantage of such system is it is completely non-invasive. So there's no risk associated with that. I can just put it on. I can just remove it, use whenever I need. The advantage is there is no innate risk with that. But then again, we need to understand these are signals that is picked up from the scalp, right? These are tiny metal pieces which pick up electrical field generated by millions of neurons so there are few constraints here one is you can't pick up activity from a few set of neurons you need thousands of neurons to fire together to have a signal that is strong enough to reach the skull by the time it reaches the skull it would be from a very dense set of neurons firing together only then this will be picked up so your signal to noise ratio here is very minimal whatever you're picking up with the ceg systems is going to be very less signal of what the brain is actually doing instead if you have a invasive recording directly measuring in and around the neurons so maybe most of them might not be directly measuring from individual neurons it might be from a set of neurons but it is still much much richer signal so you know when individual set of neurons fire so it's more precise uh, your signal to noise ratio is much cleaner so you don't need to do much processing it is a more cleaner signal that we have here but then again you have to have a surgery you have to put this system inside your brain now if i if you introduce anything to your body the body is going to reject it if it's not natural right so this is a big challenge that invasive system has been facing there is definitely a lot of advancements happening with material science uh, to build electrodes which are more durable which can last longer but at the end of the day if i have anything inside there's something called glial cells it's like an isolator in some sense which mm-hmm. covers the electrode right so over the period of time the quality decreases unlike the eeg or the non invasive systems you already put a hole in your skull so even if that electrode is broken or damaged you still have a hole that is a constraint right and there is a possibility for infection and if someone says okay i don't want to do it anymore and i just want to replace it right so there's a lot of challenges involved i think one of the biggest advantage of neuralink system is the thread based electrodes that they have it's very fine unlike the previous for example the most conventional invasive recording is uh, was called utara that was the earlier one of the systems it sort of sits on the brain and it's like very robust right it, it basically is like a rigid system so mm-hmm. if i move my head my brain actually moves inside the skull so it's going to have some scarring effects it might cut different uh, vessels blood vessels for example that is the advantage of neuralink system because it's very fine wire it is flexible so if the brain moves the wires can move and you can target areas without uh, disrupting the veins or uh, the arteries or whatever right 
so the advantage of neuralink is it is better for sure but still it is going to have scarring effects over a period of time you open your skull that is going to have an effect uh, some way or the other there might be infection down the line if something happens to the circuitry i'm pretty sure they'll have system in place to prevent anything from happening but when you are at home if something happens it's going to be a lot more chaotic than any other non invasive system right so there's this few challenges which the uh, invasive offers at the end of the day it all comes down to the pros and cons right um, for example if a person who is completely disabled like stroke with with uh, spinal cord injury or someone who has stroke who basically lost their ability to uh, carry themselves on a day to day basis right if this system is going to drastically improve their quality of life i think that's still good right i mean even though these are risk if they actually improve the quality of life on a day to day basis i think that sort of compensates for that so so those are some of the things that uh, i personally think are the differences it records from very fine new details it, it captures all those things so this infinite possibilities you can do with those things the other thing is this is not something neuralink alone happened i mean this is a system that a lot of neuroscientists have been doing i think the advantages elon musk leadership it's very focused so they made a very good engineering solution in a very good form factor so that's definitely a huge progress right but i think we are still very far away from solving a lot of the problems with these things it doesn't really matter what company it is or what approach they use but if they have even moderate success and they help one or two patients recover from being paralyzed or any sort of recovery from a brain disorder that is like absolutely incredible and we should all be supporting like that cause so hopefully in the future there will be many different companies that are exploring tons of different methods of approaching this whole thing and and there will be many invasive and non-invasive approaches catering to the specific patient's needs based on how severe their disorder is i completely agree and i think that that is why i feel like neuralink is a very uh, exciting times at least because what neuralink offers is i would have to say i mean again i'm not fully knowledgeable on the subject but i'm just from what i understood right from my from what i read um this is not something that uh, neuralink alone has all the systems that they develop this is this has been developed in the labs in different places but the the best thing about this is uh, unlike a research uh, whatever is happening in the research um it's it's over a very slow period of time and they actually build like uh, different elements of of the component uh, neuralink was very successful at organizing everything into a very good engineering solution and you need an industry with a very focused and skilled abilities like elon musk team right to actually get this to market and the advantage of uh, neuralink is it got many people excited um, you need that uh, to have more investors come in to bring this from lab to the actual application side of things uh, for sure that is an advantage i definitely think this will help a lot of people who are paralyzed or that, that is where i am very excited about neuralink but then again some of the claims that they made i am also a bit skeptical on those things um, but i i think it makes sense because you need to excite the investors to uh, get the money flowing in so you need to have those uh, make those statements to keep them on like uh, get them excited i i told i think that is what is happening but i feel like there's a direct application which will definitely benefit a lot of people do you mind commenting on like you were saying how your 
very interested in meditation and spirituality. So I am very passionate about meditation. That is an activity I really like. And I feel like there is a new connection with my body. I mean, this is another reason why I started doing my PhD and uh, this. I'm really fascinated by how how the mind and body works and how the how the how all of them synchronize together. Right? It's, it's a very beautiful thing. Like, and I I like listening to my heartbeat. I like listening to my breath. Those are things I really enjoy doing. And meditation to me is a way of opening up to those uh, those aspects. there's a lot of research happening on why meditation is useful right like for uh, many people with stress with anxiety ptsd people who have insomnia like people with different challenges right uh, meditation has been really helpful and on a very a normal day to day life having a few minutes of meditation definitely helps uh, calm down and gives us more attention to the world so i'm really was interested in um, studying the uh, meditation effects right now it's not my full research i i sort of work on it on the side i wanted to study more on what is common with we can do measure with the eeg systems i was thinking on a couple of lines one is i wanted to see if we can develop systems which can help people uh, be make it like it's like a feedback thing right the reason why i like meditation a lot is i i really feel a connection when i hear my heart or when my hear my when i listen to my breath right but i i've heard a lot of people say it's very difficult for them to meditate just to be in that state i've i've heard thousands of people say i just can't meditate right one of the major issues could be they don't get that feedback they they just mind wandering throughout right uh, so my thought is if i can science find uh, different features which are indicative of you being in a meditative state right if if they can develop feedback systems i mean this is not something new people have already done it so my interest in this was to study this a bit more what is common and how early can you detect these things is this something that only experienced people will have or someone who is new can they uh, know these things this huge research happening that shows that basically the gray matter white matter all of this quantities basically increase uh in in the frontal region regarding the emotion centers of the brain all these things actually increase uh with the long to like long term practice of meditation and i personally like interventions which are it's not pharmacological in some sense uh, which which is natural right if you can find a way which can solve most of the many problems without using medications i am an advocate for that um so which is why i'm really excited about meditation if if this can have those potentials that totally makes sense and i think like like you said like the indian or or A- asian like origins i think those uh lend itself to thinking that way you know right i often feel that way it's like if i can avoid taking western medicine then it's like i, I try to right um, and also there there is there is another side of this i mean man this is this also comes from the bias right coming from india you also hear a lot of uh also garbage about this meditation spirituality all those things right you you hear all this that's something i really want to explore in the future too like uh getting the nonsense out of the way of meditation practice try to understand what is actually the core essence of this things right um that is why i am also interested in studying this but this is on a long term basis there's something i'm definitely planning on exploring in the future um but on a on a side and i think like physically it it changes your brain right and right. so the ideal is to have a lot of data in order to know and correlate the two i think that's something that neuralink is essentially aspiring to do with like gathering enough brain data that they can feed it back to 
their own systems that's going to process the data and then figure out how to improve their sending of electric signal to specific areas of the brain to help the next patient. I think one of the promising things about Neuralink is that feedback, feedforward thing, because they, they can actually receive the data as well as transmit the data. That's very exciting. And they claim they have a very high uh, exchange of, I mean, they can exchange information at a very fast rate. That is definitely an advantage. But again, I'd have to put a, we'd have to put a caution there, right? Because I think some of the claims that they might make, Elon Musk claims about replaying memories and stuff. The idea that we, uh, he suggests us, we can record this activity and we can just uh, stimulate and the memory might come. Now, this might be a bit uh, broad statement to make at this point, I feel, because I, I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not fully informed about the subject. So uh, please take that with that in, uh, grain of salt, right? But I don't know if we are at a state to understand if we, we really even understand what memory is, like how it's represented in the brain. Because um, what Neuralink measures is basically electrical activity. Mm -hmm. If the brain does not, is not just limited to electrical activity, there's huge majority of the information flows through chemical means. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you don't even know. I mean, it could be the electrical activity could just be a byproduct. We don't even know even that information right now. Right? There's a lot of information which is not certain. And how memory is encapsulated in the brain, we are not fully informed on those things. Which is why I said, if you target a certain application, right? For example, people who have disabilities, uh, a specific population, and where we know what can help those people. Starting there and having a system that helps them and going stage by stage, I think is the best way. We are a bit still very far away from understanding many of the things in the brain that it'll be difficult to make those claims at this point, I feel. Can you talk about your involvement like at University of Houston and some of the clubs that you're a part of and what kind of the mission is of those various clubs and activities? I volunteered in a few. Uh, I was the vice president of an organization called uh, GPSA. It's the Graduate and Professional Students Association, basically a professional organization for grad students. Graduate students, they basically spend seven days a week in the lab the only conversation would be among the people who sit opposite to each other or in the same lab right we just don't go out uh, that's just not what cats students do the main purpose for uh, gpsa was to bring these students come together it's also to help the newcomers we try to organize different um, uh, things for uh, mental health right like how do you face failures sort of those sort of sessions these are things that graduate students have on a daily basis you have paper rejections you have a proposal failure, I mean, you fail in your qualifiers, um, like a million other things, you sort of, failure sort of is like a normal thing in, in your graduate students. But when you start, it's a bit too hard for you to take in. So it is to have events so that people uh, normalize these things a bit more and find a community that you're not alone. Uh, so that was my involvement with GPSE. And then I was also the president of an organization called Brain. So we have a NSF um, brain center, uh, research center. The idea behind the center is it collaborates with industry, academia, and researchers, right? It's to fasten the uh, development of neurotechnologies to bring it to uh, market faster. So that's the main purpose behind the center. So as part of the center, we created a student chapter there. Every lab is sort of independent. So we wanted to bring those students together uh, with similar interest. I was also a uh, part of an organization called EMBS IEEE. Um, it's basically for uh, biomedical. Um, 
I was also a vice president for that organization. Because of your exposure with those different groups, like basically trying to bridge the gap between academia and what's happening in industry, do you mind sharing like some of your insight as to how to potentially speed up that process or make that collaboration be a little bit more seamless? It's very interesting, right? I mean, I'll also maybe share another perspective, right? I mean, there was a conference that I attended called, uh, it's a spinal cord injury conference that they had. They actually brought in the end users, right? Like the actual people who had spinal cord injury. They were also participants of the this conference and they were part of the panelists and everything. And this was very eye-opening for me because they actually raised this concern. There is very minimal conversation between the people who are developing the system with the actual end users. So we researchers, we feel like there are some problems and we apply for grants and we try to solve that particular problem. But oftentimes the real end users, this might not be the most important thing for them. They might need something else, right? That conversation is very lacking in most of the research. This was something I was really shocked by. There is an in-between clinicians. There are other doctors, everyone in, involved, right? And then the researchers are some, not even in the hospitals to start with. There are most of the researchers are in universities. So there's a gap between the actual end users and the researchers developing the systems. This is a big problem, which needed to be solved. The same thing applies for industry applications too. Researchers develop systems. Industry has certain requirements that is the market needs, but there is no collaboration or understanding what is happening, what is missing, what is immediately needed, and how do you fasten the process? So having this center definitely is the advantage of that because the industry says, okay, this is what we need and we have the infrastructure to fasten this process. And the researchers would have the experience and expertise to sort of work on this together, right? So this does definitely bridge those things too. And I think that is very important to make everything a bit more faster to the market. Are you aware of any companies that might be making significant progress in brain-machine interface technology or anything that you think is worthwhile to increase the awareness of that product or service? There's this company called Kernel. Mm-hmm. Um, which are actually providing something called their system as a neuroscience as service system. And they're actually sort of open sourcing the system and making available the system to a lot of communities. And I, I think this particular company has a lot of potential for sure. I'm told that there's a lot of demand for this uh, kernel uh, systems from the community. I think that is one of the other fastest growing neurotechnology companies out there. There are a few consumer applications, for example, Muse systems, right? There is a system that you use for meditation. Lately, I think OpenBCI has collaborated with, um, again, uh, there is a company in Australia. There's a big company, right? They're trying to make gaming more uh, interactive with the CEG systems, or they're actually collaborating and they're proposing this to be a big thing going forward. There are a few industry collaborations happening. My PI used to say this, uh, the next thing that might come is uh, neuroscience, I mean, BCI as a, uh, similar to IoT, right? Uh, BCI-IoT, like every, your day-to-day applications might be interfaced with the brain in some sense, like it could be turning on lights, things like that, which you basically snap, think of it, that happens. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know if it's too far, that could be an easy application, which we might be able to do. We can interface with the IoT. Uh, and the brain basically acts like a switch, right? Those are things I think that might happen in the coming few years for sure. Like a very smaller scale. On a bigger scale for sure, uh, Neuralink would still be the leader on that. 
regulatory aspects is one of the biggest challenges hurdles in these things and i think they are much faster in front than most companies so yeah in that space i think neuralink is still the leading players i think the whole like internet of things connectivity to different devices directly to your brain i it feels like those types of applications would be pretty cool it's like basically anything that an amazon alexa could do also you mentioned the gaming i've started to realize that it's not just with like this technology but basically any industry it seems like a lot of technology gets pioneered by the gaming industry and defense industry have you guys like in in your lab or anything thought about those types of applications or is it primarily just focused on medical applications yeah so i mean we haven't done gaming per se but we've actually still for the medical applications we we did something with the uh, avatar like it, we we make a like a character the movement of the character is influenced by the brain activity so we decode the person's leg movements from the brain activity mm-hmm. that's something that we did this is still for uh, rehabilitation purpose but we still we it was the intent was this we will be moving a character on the screen what you said is true i mean this is this is also something i i feel like that's going to happen uh, the best way to raise money for research is to have an application which is which you can easily capture which is gaming like you you'll have a lot of money people put in a lot of money based on that money you uh, build other systems gaming is one option uh, you invest in that uh, get some money from that and then you do other research do you think there's anything that Neuralink really, really needs to overcome that's not necessarily super obvious right now? There are a few things. As I said, one is the glial attack, right? The electrode quality degrades over the period of time. They really need to have the system in the head and test it for a long period of time to see how long this lasts, right? I mean, there are tests like accelerated degradation tests and stuff where you put the system in extreme conditions to accelerate the the, uh, the uh, sort of project into the future, right? but when it comes to an actual brain and how it behaves these are all always sim- uh, simplest simplified uh, environments right it's not how the brain would actually work so how the systems would last in an actual human brain over a long period of time you just need to actually test it to sort of prove it right i mean mm-hmm. uh, i think one of the biggest challenges when when uh, they make these claims right uh, that you can solve um, memory you can do this when uh, they make this grand claims and then when someone actually uses the systems they'll they'll be undergoing the surgery with this expectation right they're going to solve most of my problems if i do this implant and if that expectation is not met that is going to have huge impact on their life because if they go in thinking that this is going to solve all of my problems and at the end it it doesn't really solve any of them right that's going to have a huge negative impact on their life that conversation needs to have a bit more honestly uh, on what is what is limited what it can do but i i definitely see i mean you can't just say that when you call a press and you have people come in i can't just say okay we can only do this we can't really say that out loud right uh, i can see why that's a challenge from an application point of view i feel like that's an ethical thing that they need to take care of one big problem this is something i read about when i was i took a low course on uh, ethical ethics of biomedical devices right say this someone gets implanted with the systems right um, and over a period of time this company goes bankrupt so what happens to the patients like if something happens to the system like who is going to take responsibility for this right 
I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they have things in place to handle the situations. I, I would, I would hope so. But if not, what, what, what do these people do? Like, they have a system on their head that just got damaged. It short circuits or something. I don't know. Something crazy happens, right? Or it stops working. Like, what do they do with the system? Can how do they replace it? Who's going to cover for those costs? Unlike the invasive, non-invasive things that I talked, you can't just remove it and just get back to your normal life. that might be something to uh, think about having a concern but i definitely see neuralink to help a lot of people i i see how this can benefit a lot of community for the time being if they focus on the particular group and try to help them first and then expand later on i think that's going to be great going through fda related approvals i'm curious if you could give a little bit of insight into like that whole process and what it's like for different implanted devices is the device safe to be used on a person the second is is it effective like does it actually have any effect right those are the two questions that fda looks for uh based on the safety there are a few device few classes class 1 class 2 and class 3 um uh, depends on how how bad the system is right like how how much damage it can cause to your to you for example some of the commercial systems those will be class 1 uh, which is very low uh, risk there's less regulatory uh, things involved there but if there is if the risk is higher generally they are class 2 devices and if this is not the first device out there right for example uh, invasive recording this is not the first device so there's already systems that have already already been approved there is a separate a uh, regulatory thing for a novel device the first time right they 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 go through more stringent uh, checks but the next time a new device comes they don't have to go through the entire process they just have to say our system matches the safety and every standard with the previously approved thing that's the only thing that they need to say there's going to be more regulation as the classification increases so this is going to be the highest classification this invasive technologies but again this is not the first device out there i don't know how how the general timeline of these things are uh, whether it's it's only for experimental purpose for short duration of time or how how those things are but generally these are depending, depending on the level of injury but neuralink is not the first to do implants so i think they'll they'll know what are the methods that needs to be followed keeping that as a commercially viable device for long term periods of time that's going to be a huge more constraints Last August when Neuralink did their update event, Elon was saying that they got breakthrough device designation. Mm-hmm. Uh do you know how much that speeds up the approvals? That is not the same as telling that it's FDA approved. I think it is in a way of telling that you can start the actual process of running the experiments. They have a lot of checks in place like you need to report a lot of things, you need to document everything, so it's like a nod to start the experiments I think. uh it, it, i i think it's as long way from getting fda approved is there any last thing that you wanted to share with the audience i think it's very important that you you get informed on both side every side of this 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 kind of conversations are important i think what you're doing is good like excellent job right you you compile all the information from different places and people can go there and get more information out so some of the things that i say might not be correct but still you can you can do your own research right i mean you need to think about the ethics of all of this uh, how how this going to go about i mean elon must does say about how we going to cyborgs and everything right that's very exciting times but we need to think about the situation right Dick? for example if if 10 of my friends right of which eight of them got the implants 
and they started doing the math like 10 times faster now i will be forced to do this even if i don't want it not to fall behind i would be forced to commit to getting those devices right so there is a possibility of peer uh, influence that forces a lot of people to commit to these things going forward um, so i think uh, a huge part of ethics has to be involved in developing the systems on top of the advancement in technologies i felt that having philosophers on the team definitely helps it sort of brings it down a bit the progress but i think it's very important considering the scale of this technology right how much it can change human uh, life i definitely think this is a huge advancement and this is going to definitely change a lot of people's life but it has to be in a carefully planned and organized manner thank you for those thoughts and uh, the entire conversation it was great to talk with you again hey man thank you thank you for inviting me thank you